0: All right. Well, good afternoon. Uh, Welcome on this wet, wet day to this very special panel on the relationship between cities and their waterways. I'm Bill Gleason. I'm the acting director of the program in American Studies, and I'm very pleased to be the moderator for tonight's panel. Rivers Are Us, Reviving Rivers, Reinventing Cities, is the second public event This week, organized uh, by Jenny Price, Princeton's 2011-2012 Distinguished Anschutz Fellow in American Studies. The Anschutz Fellowship was endowed in 1997 through the generosity of Philip and Nancy Anschutz and their daughters Sarah Anschutz-Hunt, Princeton class of 1993, and Elizabeth Anschutz, Princeton class of 1996. Each year, the Anschutz Fellow program brings to campus a leading scholar or practitioner in American arts, letters, politics, or commerce. The goal of the uh, fellowship program is twofold. On the one hand, to widen the intellectual scope of the American Studies program. On On the other hand, to give the fellow, him or herself, an opportunity to take part in Princeton's scholarly teaching and social life. You can see on the reverse of the event flyer, if you picked one of these up on your way in, on the reverse... You can see all the reasons why the Anschutz Selection Committee leapt at the chance to have Jenny Price, who is herself also a Princeton alum, here with us this semester. The students who've taken her fall seminar on the art of sustainability, and those of you who have attended any of the other events organized by Jenny or in which she has participated know how much intellectual and creative energy she's brought in her return to campus. Indeed, the list of co-sponsors on the front of the flyer suggests just how broad her impact has been. Tonight's panel is presented not only by the Anschutz Fellowship and the Program in American Studies, but also the School of Architecture, the Princeton Environmental Institute, the Office of Sustainability, and the Center for Arts and Cultural Policy Studies. And we're grateful to each of these units for their support of tonight's event. Jenny's co-panelist tonight is Jeanette Kim who also happens to be a Princeton alum. Uh, She's an MA graduate of the School of Architecture. Jeanette is currently the director of the amazing Urban Landscape Lab at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture. I can say amazing uh, firsthand because two years ago, we took the students in our American Places course, the core course for the American Studies program, to the Urban Landscape Lab, to see their incredible Safari 7 reading room project, a historical and ecological journey through the borough of Queens, mapped and recorded along the route of the number seven subway line. It's a three-dimensional map, it's um, it's wall-mounted displays, it's podcasts prepared by the students at each stop along the subway, describing the habitats, behaviors, and life cycles of the creatures and humans and uh, bacteria, actually, Mm -hmm. that uh, live along the seven. It was a fascinating introduction for our students to think not only about the urban environment, but also about eco-citizenship. Today's program promises a similarly fascinating and illuminating look at the ecological, social, and political opportunities and challenges presented by Urban Rivers. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jenny Price and Jeanette Kim.
1: Thank you so much, and what a, what a warm introduction, Phil. So thank you so much for starting off the evening. Um, I'm really excited to have a chance to um, talk with Jenny tonight about these waterways. Um, I think in many ways, the, the LA River and the Falkill Creek in Poughkeepsie that we'll be discussing tonight are really strange and unusual places. Um, they reveal um, sometimes very hidden and surprising qualities of the cities that they run through. Um, but at the same time, they're actually very ordinary. Um, I think almost any city that you could name has a creek in its backyard or a river in its backyard that the city has over time sort of turned its back to. And so I think a lot of the issues that we're looking at tonight are really applicable to uh, many, many different cities. Um, as the city tries to turn its, its face back towards these waterways, um, what kinds of things are we trying to reenact? Um, what qualities of the, of the waterways are we trying to bring back into our cities? And I think tonight will be a really, ex- at least for me, exciting chance to ask those questions. Um, So for, sorry, this feels very tall and I feel very small. Um, So tonight's um, structure will be, um, uh, Jenny and I will go back and forth around three topics. Um, We'll start with, um, uh, this is my opportunity, we'll start with history and then move into um, um, solutions and then uh, uh, complete the talk with um, implementation and then hopefully have um, a lot of time for discussion um, afterwards. Um, So... I will be um, speaking tonight about a master plan and a series of pilot site designs uh, that my colleagues and I are, are creating around the Fallkill Creek, um, which is a small creek that runs through the center of Poughkeepsie, in, uh, Poughkeepsie New York in the Hudson Valley. Um, we are, um, the project was initiated by um, a grant that uh, uh, Clearwater, uh, na- a nonprofit based in Beacon, Um, was able to acquire from the New York State Hudson DEC or Department of Environmental Conservation, um, which was, um, the grant was in a way, a kind of descendant of a stimulus bill grant and was focused on um, uh, developing design ideas around watersheds. Um, We we were brought in by Matthew Slats, who's here tonight. Raise your hand, Matthew. Um, This is Matthew, who is the founder of a group called um, PAWS, uh, Project Arts for Urban Exchange. Um, which pairs um, artists and designers with non-profits um, that are active um, in um, built projects and and urban environments. And so he brought us into the project um, and then we've also been working with Alice Fung, a landscape architect, and um, E-Design Dynamics, which is a hydrology and habitat restoration consulting group in New York City. Um, We were tasked with um, the creation of a master plan and a series of pilot pilot site designs that could then be um, developed and acted upon um, as a next step. Um, And in many ways, um, we've taken on the project, um, not just as a master plan scheme, but also as an opportunity to think about um, methods of engagement um, that need to happen from starting now into the future to make make the city actually turn its face back towards the creek. so in this first section, I'd just like to give a little bit of background on the creek and um, talk about some of the issues that we've been um, dealing with in our conversations with different um, agencies and citizens. Um, to begin with, just to give you a little bit of a background, like, like many cities, uh, the Fallkill Kill Creek um, played a very dominant role in the development and the industrialization of Poughkeepsie. Um, many of its first factories were formed along its banks. Um, there were mills that were using its power. Um, um, Subsequently, as the railroads came in, um, the the industry started to move away from the creek. And already in the mid-19th century, um, the creek just became a kind of wasteland. Um, Mill ponds that had been been formed had been turned into malarial swamps. Um, I found records of people 100 years ago almost rioting, um, demanding that the city fill in these mill ponds. And um, um, today what you see is a kind of landscape of low-income housing, that results from that time of houses that were built around um, um, really uh, suspect landscapes. And um, um, from this, um, from in this context, oh, sorry, I should just say that today basically what you see are, uh, is a kind of landscape of low-income housing and parking lots that kind of mark these um, um, former, swamp, uh, former wetlands. And um, I think for us beginning the project, a really big question was this idea about what we want to recover or what we want to reinvent in the city in response to the creek. Um, in many ways, I think the people who started this project um, intended for us to create a greenway trail, um, to create a kind of nature trail along the creek, um, and to focus on the kind of uh, uh, celebration of um, the historic sites along the creek. Um, for us, though, we felt that it was really important to recognize that this wasn't just a nature trail or that it wasn't something external to the city, but that it really needed to be something that engaged um, the, the very uh, kind of focus of urban life. So what you see here is a kind of marking of ways that people do or could use the site. So in addition to a nature trail, we could look at science programming, science research, education. Um, we could look at the way that people hang out on the street, the way that daycare operates, the way that people get to work and school. Um, and we could start looking at the way that Creek areas relate to retail centers, um, uh, food resources, and things that are really embedded in daily life of the city. Um, Amazingly enough, many of Poughkeepsie's most active organizations are right along the banks of the creek, and so they're really um, important players in this this form of activation. Um, Similarly, we started to ask... I'm, I'm completely new to Poughkeepsie, and when we started the project, I kept asking Matthew... What are the neighborhoods? like? Where are the neighborhoods in Poughkeepsie? And I kept getting, well, I don't really know. We don't really know what the neighborhoods are. And there were a few distinct areas, but in many ways, it's not a city that coalesces around distinct neighborhoods. And so we started to ask how the creek or how public access to the creek could help to generate new neighborhood centers in the city. Um, Similarly, we started to look at um, the way that Poughkeepsie plays a regional role in the area. A lot of people go through Poughkeepsie but don't spend time there because they take the train up and then drive out to uh, vacation homes further north. And so it's been important for us to understand how to start to pull the, the, those people into the um, kind of the, 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 the more of the, the, the inner neighborhoods of the city. Similarly, um, for those of you who know the area, the walkway over the Hudson is this really extraordinary um, project in which they've transformed a former rail bed um, over the Hudson into a pedestrian walkway. So you see that um, in this pink line up here, and we've been looking at ways to use the creek to create a kind of cross-grain traffic that's pulling people in from those sites into the center of the city. Um, Race plays a role here as well. Um, In many ways, a lot of the focus of development in the city has focused around the condo development and the railroad station to the west. Um, And there are many... um, As much as people don't identify with neighborhoods, there are enclaves of people who are, um, there are enclaves of people um, that tend to organize by race um, and ethnicity. And um, in many ways, we saw this as an opportunity to start to connect neighborhoods through the creek that actually does run all the way through the city. Um, I'd also like to give a little bit of a background about um, water quality and habitat issues around the creek. uh, the creek, like many urban waterways, has extremely low quality. It's um, fecal coliform count, for example, is 50 times the level um, deemed safe for swimming. Um, it suffers, like again, like all urban creeks, it suffers from high nutrient levels, um, high temperatures, low oxygen rates. Um, it has been, um, it sorry, this is stuck for a second, but we're faced with a combined sewage overflow system that's um, um, pushing uh, sewage systems during rainstorms out into the waterways. Poughkeepsie, by the way, gets its drinking water from the Hudson River, so um, the issues of water quality are even more charged. Personally, um, the creek has been since the New Deal, New Deal era um, channelized into this uh, by this stone wall, um, and so we see as many of our tasks. Um, uh, sorry, I'm getting off subject here, but. Um, we see as part of our task um, the need to both call attention to um, these problems to um, to, uh, uh, provoke public support for large-scale infrastructural changes. So for example um, there's a need to invest in a um, separated sewer system, a need to find um, um, pollution sources upstream. A lot of these problems are very large scale and we're our, the portion of the creek that we're looking at covers an incredibly small portion of the creek, which you see down here. This is the entire Fall Kill Creek, and we're looking at the boundaries of the city of Poughkeepsie. So the issue of big versus small is very huge here. Um, and, but at the same time, we are trying to think small and um, understand that green infrastructure practices, um, porous pavement, um, the introduc- the reestablishment of wetlands and riparian habitats is really crucial to dealing with these problems. Um similarly, we're faced with questions of habitat restoration. And uh, again, like many urban waterways, um, the creek is dominated by human-sponsored species, raccoons, squirrels, um, and animals that act as pests in um that, that dominate these landscapes. Um so we're faced with um, you know, we, we actually don't even have an opportunity for preservation anymore. At this point, it's really about construction. And so we're looking for opportunities to repair and reintroduce riparian habitats and wetlands back into the creek. Um, So I think, oh, I should also say there's been just a really extraordinary and exciting um, set of projects that um, have engaged school groups and there's a a study of glass eels in the creek, for example, that really invites people to start wading into the creek and take samples and, and really monitor this creek in some really engaging ways. Um, so these are, pro- this, we always talk about how th- this has become like the, the Paul Bunyan image for the creek, <laughs> that this becomes the image of how we want people to re-engage. Um, but I'll, I'll end the first section with this, just that these are some of the questions we're looking at. We're hoping as much as possible to find um, uh, sites for mutual benefit between um, the desire to reactivate the city core and um, the need to restore water quality and habitat. So, Jenny.
2: Okay, and I just want to really briefly, uh, this has been a multi-panel week, so I said this a couple nights ago, but just to thank American Studies for bringing me here, uh, Bill Gleason, Dirk Hartag uh, brought me here, and um, Judith First and Candice Kessel, who have made so many things happen since I've been here, it's just really meaningful to be back here. Uh, having been an undergrad, and my career has gone in so many weird, strange directions since then—ways I couldn't have anticipated when I was a biology major here—but I think is all rooted very, very logically in the education that I received here. So it's just really been wonderful to be part of the community again. Um, okay, so um, the Los Angeles River, there it is. Yes. Um, so uh, <laughs> see, it looks a little worse than the Fall Kill, I think. Um, So, uh, when I moved to L.A. in 1998, and I've always been a real uh, nature girl, um, and I was looking for places to hang out in nature in Los Angeles, and the L.A. River quickly became one of my favorite places to hang out in nature. There's my nephews hanging out in the L.A. River in my car, looking very Um, teenager-ish. To be fair, the L.A. River doesn't all... Oh, okay. Can everybody hear me okay? No. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah? No? Okay. Um, To be fair, it doesn't all look like that. Some of it looks like that. (laughs) Some of it looks like that. Um, But one reason that it's become one of my favorite places to hang out in nature in L.A. is that I think it really holds one of the most important keys to Los Angeles' future. And to see uh, why uh, it holds the key to the future, I really want to focus for my eight minutes on this section on um, the pass. So, let's see, let's move this over a little bit. I'm so old fashioned, I use paper notes. Okay. So, um, just a really quick uh, uh, quick, like you know, five minute history of the Los Angeles River. Um, the Los Angeles River is the reason that Los Angeles exists. Um, so, uh, without uh, the Los Angeles River, we wouldn't have the things about Los Angeles that we do love most. That's the thing that my nephews love most when they come to visit me. Um, No in and out without the Los Angeles River. No animal-style burgers, for those of you who know L.A. Um, L.A. is a river basin. Um, It's not how we usually think of it, but it is a river basin. It has three major mountain ranges that are right in the city, and each one of those mountain ranges drains major... uh, I'm sorry, the river drains major portions of each of those three mountain ranges, and it runs 51 miles uh, through the heart of... uh, of L.A. County, um, all the way across the valley. For those of you who know anything about L.A., the San Fernando Valley, and then sort of goes uh, across from Griffith and Elysian Parks and along the east side of downtown and out through the industrial corridor of southeast L.A. and into the river at Long Beach. Um, It is the central artery of the major watershed in the Los Angeles area, and that uh, explains why it's really one of the best water sources in all of Southern California, uh, which is why in 1769, when the explorers were coming up, from Mexico looking for settlements. They said, you know, we ran into this beautiful valley, this well-watered valley. It's gorgeous. It's the best place we've seen for settlement so far, which is why in 1781 uh, the Pueblo was founded um, at the spot on the river that actually has the best above-ground year-round supply of water, and that's what it looks like now because we're really into historic preservation in Los Angeles. Um, So it's the reason that uh, the L.A. River is the reason that L.A. exists. It's also the reason that L.A. was able to grow into a city. Uh, L.A. relied on the river and its aquifers as its only source of water for about uh, 130 years until 1913 when very famously we decided to start uh, buying, some say importing, some say stealing, uh, water from Northern California. So the L.A. River is a central natural fact of L.A. It's a central historical fact of L.A. It runs 51 miles through the heart of the L.A. area. It runs under pretty much every major freeway. Everyone in L.A. has seen it. Most people in the country have seen it because they've all seen the films that have been um, uh, filmed in it. It's really kind of an extraordinary river. Most people in the world have seen it, or a lot of people in the world have seen it. The extraordinary, most extraordinary thing about this extraordinary river today is that no one seems to know where it is. Okay, So how does that happen? Los Angeles is essentially a city that has lost its river. I mean, I'm from St. Louis, uh, I, didn't, I grew up in the suburbs. We didn't go to the Mississippi, but we were like, what's the Mississippi River? We knew it was there, and we knew its importance to our history. So how does that happen? So um, the LA River actually poses uh, a slight uh, flooding problem. Uh, it's actually, uh, it's actually one of the, poses one of the worst flooding dangers of any river in a major American city. That may seem odd. Uh, Mark Twain wrote that he fell into a Southern California river and came out all dusty. Um, but we do have these three mountain ranges and, um, the LA basin is a really big place to build a city. It's a tiny, tiny place for all the drainage we get. The river falls farther and it's 51 miles than the Mississippi falls in over 2,000 miles from Wisconsin to, uh, to the ocean. So, um, so we just, all this water just comes pouring into the basin, uh, obviously through the 20th century, um, as we paved the LA basin, uh, the floods got worse, um, and in the 1930s, there was a series of floods that literally had people canoeing all over Los Angeles. Sounds fun, I know. Um, but uh, the, uh, the city, which had been trying to address this problem, brought in the big guns, the Army Corps of Engineers, and they said, hey, we know how we're going to solve your flooding problem. We're going to build you a 51-mile, three-sided concrete trench, 20 to 30 feet deep, and we're going to stick your river into it. And uh, L.A. went, yay. And... Um, that's what they did, and they spent, they used about three and a half million barrels of concrete, and it took them about 25 years to concrete the river and all the tributaries. Um, that's the headwaters uh, before they concreted the river, and that's the beautiful uh, headwaters of the mighty Ellie River uh, now, right next to the Kenoga Park High School football field. Okay, and they can do this because we're no longer relying on the river for our water. Now, the standard explanation for why we start buying, importing, stealing water from Northern California is that L.A. is a desert and that we outgrow our water supply. So whenever I do tours of the L.A. River, I always have people repeat after me and louder if they don't do it convincingly. L.A. is not a desert. This is one of the biggest myths that we have in L.A., and it's really, been, uh, really shaped the city in ways that have often been uh, very unproductive. L.A. is not a desert. It has a semi-arid Mediterranean climate. And uh, the alternative explanation is that we uh, drained the river. Uh, We were using three times as much water in L.A. in 1900 as most eastern cities per capita. And we turned the river into a sewer and a trash dump. So the alternative explanation is that we live in a place in L.A. where we have to use water wisely. And we destroyed the river. We destroyed our water supply. So they paved it. Uh, It seemed like a really good idea at the time, but it created, as you can imagine, a few problems. So let me just go through those problems really quickly. Um, And the rest of this history part of the story is uh, how paving your river and screwing up one of your central natural facts so dramatically really screws up your city. Um, So that's sort of the the rest of the the history part of the story. So uh, the problems that it creates. First of all, ecological problems. Uh, You've taken a river and you've cut it off from its river basin. So the river can no longer replenish the soils with nutrients, the aquifers with water, the beaches with sand. That's why they're hauling sand from the San Fernando Valley onto the Malibu beaches every winter. According to John McPhee, the people in um, Malibu complain that it's the wrong color, (laughs) which I think requires no comment. Um, So that's ecological problems. Also, they had the brilliant idea of connecting the entire storm sewer system into the river, so uh, now the river basically functions very, very efficiently, efficiently to gather the sort of thousands of toxins off of our lawns and off of our roads uh, into the storm sewers, into the tributaries, into the river, and sends them directly to the ocean, which is why we have some of the dirtiest uh, uh, ocean waters um, and beaches in the country. Um, They did solve the flooding flooding problem. But if you think about it, how do they solve the flooding problem? By dramatically exacerbating the flooding problem. Because, like I said, all the infrastructure in L.A. is designed to get our water as fast as possible into the river. So it used to hold about 8% uh, of the storm uh, water, and now it holds up to 80% of the storm water. So we've made the floods much worse, even though we're containing them. So those are ecological problems. Um, There's also social problems. Since at least the turn of the century, Los Angeles has had the least park space per capita of any major American city in the country. We are very dysfunctional when it comes to park space, public space, green space, connecting space. We're very notorious for this. And of course, the the neighborhoods that are the worst are um, the the poorest neighborhoods, the least white neighborhoods. Uh, There are places in L.A. you can walk for three miles and not hit a public park. Whenever I go to another city, like go home to St. Louis, I'm like, whoa, what's that park doing there? That's amazing. You know, There's parks all over the place, and that's just really extraordinary. (laughs) And what we did in the 1930s is sort of took the most single most logical place for a green space and connecting space in all of the L.A. Basin and turned it into our grand sewer. So Venice has the Grand Canal. We have our grand sewer. Um, And of course, there's a lot of industry that now lines us, and some of the poorest neighborhoods in L.A. County are along this corridor. Okay, So that's social problems. And then finally, water supply. Um, This is the way we manage our water in Los Angeles, which does have a semi-arid climate. We take all the rainfall that we get from the sky for free, okay, and then we – all of our infrastructure, all the gutters and everything, all the infrastructure, concrete infrastructure, is designed to get our rainfall as fast as possible into the rivers, into the storm sewers, into the river, and out to the ocean. So we essentially use our local water supplies to water the Pacific Ocean, literally. And then we spend, just the city of L.A., and there's, I don't know how many cities, 85 cities in L.A. County or something, just the city of L.A. spends a billion dollars a year to import 200 billion gallons of water. Uh, It's 20% of our energy output in L.A. from watersheds all over the West. That's significant social and ecological damage to those watersheds. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. So if you think about it, um, I love that slide. Um, if you think about it, um, paving the LA River, screwing up the LA River is really profoundly implicated in pretty much all of the troubles that LA is so notorious for. So uh, severe environmental degradation, um, social inequities, extreme social inequities, problems with uh, absence of green space and public space, and our kind of unseemly uh, thirst for the rest of the West's water. Um, One other uh, problem is that also we created a cultural problem when we paved the river. Essentially, the city lost its river. Um, We lost the river from our collective spirit of place. We kind of lost our understanding of our ecosystem that we live in and how it functions. And this is also typical of L.A. to treat the landscape in the Los Angeles Basin as a kind of blank slate upon which we can project our dreams um, without regard to what's ecologically sustainable or makes sense. Um, so it becomes um, not just this kind of environmental and social travesty, but it uh, becomes the most famous forgotten river in America. It um, becomes a joke, and uh, David Letterman calls it the last two-lane river left in America, I think, at some point. It becomes the place where um, they dump all the bodies in the movies. Just watch any crime show, TV crime show filmed in L.A., I guarantee you they will dump a body in the L.A. River at some point. Um, okay, so that's, um, I think that was, okay, so we're going to move on to solutions, and I'm just going to barrel right on, and then Jeanette's going to come on, and I think there's tons of resonances in, in what we've, we've both been talking about. It's essentially we're telling the exact same story. Uh, we're just telling it for different rivers, and I'm telling it as a historian, and Jeanette's telling it as an architect. Um, we've been really fascinated with how we approach things differently. Um, Okay, so um, the history of the river. I I just told a really brief history of the river. It's pretty grim. Um, The good news is that if screwing up your river screws up your city, then unscrewing up your river uh, can really help you unscrew up your city quite dramatically um, and make it more sustainable and equitable. And in LA, this starts to happen in 1985. Uh, A guy named Lewis McAdams is an artist. uh recruits some friends, they go down the LA River, and they, they um, trespass, essentially. They, they cut the barbed wire, and they say, we're going to revitalize the LA River. And people say, what's the LA River? We have a river? Um, and he found this group called Friends of the LA River. Um, at the time, there's, a, there's a, a proposal to turn it into a truck freeway during dry season. It actually gets more traction. People think he's nuts. But he's very persistent, and I won't go through the whole story. But in 1985, you have zero dollars going into river revitalization. And by 2000, you've got over $100 million, uh, going in. And it's really become one of the biggest things going on in L.A., one of the most consensus issues, I think. And everyone, uh, pretty much, that you could possibly think of, every public agency, every nonprofit, every community that could possibly involve saying, we have to do this. Um, even Department of Public Works, which fought it for a really long time, is now a major player. Um, The city of LA releases a master plan in 2007, and it's now this incredibly ambitious, well-funded, widely supported um, project, not well-funded enough, but um, to uh, grapple with the problems um, and to create a different kind of future for LA because people start thinking about, like, not just let's free the LA River, let's free Mother Nature, which I think is sort of what it started out as, but if you were to revitalize the LA River, what that would actually mean for LA. Um, and the point I always tell people on my tours, is like, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's that revitalizing the LA River isn't about the LA River, really. Primarily, it's really about Los Angeles. Um, so what do you have to do? Just very briefly, you have to essentially do three things to revitalize the river. You have to green it, you have to clean it, you have to take out some concrete. Not all of it, but some. Um, and there's really, just think about the consequences for each one of those goals, so to green the river, uh, I've actually been holding back on you, there's, um, there's a few soft bottom stretches of the river that will look more like that, um, actually quite nice, um, full of birds. So to green it, you would create a 51 mile greenway and bikeway uh, through the heart of the Los Angeles area. It's the backbone, logical backbone, for a network of greenways and bikeways. Um, Through LA County, especially in the neighborhoods that need it most. So you can imagine the kinds of uh, people that start to get excited about this, many of whom don't call themselves environmentalists. Um, To clean the river, um, you can't just take all this stuff out of the river. Uh, You really have to think about um, this incredible load of toxics that's coming through our storm sewer and how much, how many of these toxic substances we rely on for daily life, whether it's paints or car waxes or you know, deodorants or whatever, it all ends up in the air and the water and in our bodies, uh, these pesticides, fertilizers, asbestos, plastics. Prozac. Um, <laughs> people on my tours are getting happier and happier. Um, so you really have to sort of think about the toxicity of everyday life. I actually think that's the toughest goal. I think it's harder than figuring out how to take out the concrete, figuring out how to clean up our water. To take out the concrete, um, you really have to, you can't do it right now because half of, we'd be canoeing all over Los Angeles again uh, the next wet winter we had, which I think we've already had uh, from what I hear. You really have to rethink how we move water through Los Angeles and we really have to start capturing water where it falls rather than sending it to water the Pacific Ocean. Um, A lot of people think uh, we could supply all of our own water right now, right now, even with the population we have now. But even the most conservative estimates are about 40 percent, which is much better. So, for, to do that, you can do that with all kinds of infrastructural means: porous pavement. Trust me, that's supposed to be porous pavement. Um, cisterns, backyard cisterns. Here's um, retrofitting the storm sewers, uh, diverting. Another exciting photo of the green city. This is what we get. Excited. This is one of the reasons I love LA. There's so many people who think that photo is exciting. Um, uh, so that's uh, essentially. Diverting water away from the storm sewers into these uh, swales. Um, and uh, what, am I, what am I doing here? So, uh, so in, of all kinds of infrastructural ways to capture water. And then, of course, greening parks. This is a, 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 a wetland that they basically built from scratch trees. Uh, the parks can double as, um, as flood diversion basins. And if you do all that and you put it all together... Uh, you green and connect LA, you maximize our water supplies, you maximize our water quality, uh, help clean up the air, you give desperately needed park space and green space space to the neighborhoods uh, that need it most, and you potentially change how water moves through the west. So that's why everybody's so excited about revitalizing the LA River, don't they look excited? Um, These guys sent me after a tour, they said, we bet you don't have three people of color um, holding the master plan and smiling. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, you're right, I don't have a photo of that. so um, It just has enormous potential to address a lot of the problems in L.A. Uh, it's not going to solve all of our problems, but I'm not sure you can address our problems without at least addressing the river. Um, just one more thing, um, it's not going to happen fast. Um, Lewis McAdams calls it his 40-year art project, and it took me a long time to realize that he doesn't mean that as a metaphor. He means that very literally, that in vital ways this is an art project. Artists have remained uh, really involved Um, To revitalize it, you have to green it, you have to clean it, you have to take out some concrete, but you also have to address the cultural problem. You have to uh, remember the river and reimagine the river and kind of imagine the river back into uh, the ecosystem um, and into our collective spirit of place and into our um, understanding of the city. See? All green. Um, Jeff?
1: So I don't know that I can claim that these are exactly solutions, but I would like to show you some of our master plan um, uh, proposals and um, some of our design schemes for um, some pilot sites that would be the first kind of testing grounds for um, the development of public space along the Falkill Creek. Um, so what you're seeing here is a kind of... Just a little while Oh, sure. Um, so in general, our approach to, towards the master plan has been to think about spaces along the creek as new neighborhood centers. And as much as possible, we've tried to tie those back into the city. Um, Our major strategies are first to develop pocket parks along the creek. Um, Pocket parks could be developed on city owned property or most like, more likely in partnership with public service organizations and schools and other institutions that are located along the creek. As a secondary strategy and a much more long term strategy, Um, we've been looking at the introduction of walkways or greenways or trails along the creek. Um, Given that the creek is divided up into into the backyards of many, many private properties from schools to private residences, it's a significant challenge. Um, But I'll walk you through a couple of the corridors that we've mapped out and talk about some of the pilot sites that we've designed along the way. Um, So for one example, great. In one example, um, we're looking at a pathway that starts from the train station, um, the Metro North and Amtrak train station, and cuts through what's now a kind of very barren parking lot filled with taxi stands and um, taxi cab drivers hanging out through an existing park and around a kind of condo development area. Um, And then the the pathway would then continue through and really try to connect um, what's now one of the the strongest or most identifiable neighborhoods, um, which is the Mount Carmel or Little Italy neighborhood. Um, Currently, that neighborhood is really separated from another kind of retail strip um, to the south. And um, I think there's a potential here to really connect the train station into that retail corridor. Um, And then we're pulling this walkway along um, a long uh, street um, that runs right along the creek and has uh, public access uh, right now to the creek. The property is actually um, adjacent to a former public housing development um, that went private, um, I would guess, something like 15, 20 years ago. And um, the property used to actually have a bridge that cut across, um, but has now been basically cut off. Um, and we had this really interesting meeting with the housing, um, the, the landlord, the landowner right now. And we can see certain ways in which they constantly see the creek as a liability. Um, and we've been talking with them about ways to really kind of release some of that liability to the city and help them sort of turn um, um, turn their property now into a waterfront property. Um, we then... Um, connect over here to Washington Street, which is the north-south corridor that connects up to the walkway over the Hudson, which is that railway that I spoke about earlier that that crosses the Hudson River. Um, So in this way, we're really trying to attempt to sort of stitch together neighborhoods and try to reconnect um, the housing um, um, area back into the creek. Um, So here you can see, for example, that walkway from the train station. Underneath is really fantastically gorgeous, but totally off, off access um, uh, underpass or or space under the the highway um, and then through the park and um, um, back out to the walkway. Um, So here you can see a a kind of rough sketch um, of the introduction of a greenway into that long linear pathway. And um, we've been speaking with our hydrology consultant about um, uh, using wetlands and more specifically a a kind of intermittent wetland. that can help to filter water off of the the roadway before it reaches the creek. Um, And that in turn then helps us think about how we activate this as a neighborhood center. So we've talked about producing, uh, creating a kind of um, uh, uh, very immediate, uh, kind of cheap and quick and easy picnic area that could be created um, that connects, uh, in a way that connects to the Little Italy neighborhood. And then we've talked about um, instituting a plant nursery that could help to grow wetland plants that could then be fostered in this area and then distributed out to neighbors to use for their rain gardens and their backyards as well. Um, And then you can see the kind of introduction of a planted walkway along this lowered area near the creek. Um, In many ways, too, we've tried as much as possible to show the kind of networks between... Um, water quality habitat restoration, and social functions and so in this example you can start to see that the uh, recreational trail that can cut through this this long linear uh, walkway um, but you also start to see educational programming and things that can really use the um, recreated wetlands um, for um, more kind of day to day and educational purposes um, and then I'll walk you briefly through the another uh, 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 one of these walkways um, that we've kind of mapped out. Um, this one, I'll just situate you quickly. This is um, what we're uh, calling a mansion square corridor. It could also um, um, connect, it basically connects into from uh, uh, Malcolm X Park um, out to Middle Main, which is another retail corridor. Um, and what's really intriguing about this area is that it, activates a lot of the um, social service institutions that that are really active in Poughkeepsie. And so you see um, an elementary school, um, a Beulah Baptist Church, um, a a Catherine Street Community Center, which has daycare programming, and the Family Partnership Center. And this creek basically runs through the backyard and through the properties of all of these organizations. And um, similarly, we had a meeting with the Family Partnership Center which is basically an organization that's based in a a former high school in Poughkeepsie. It's this huge, um, again, a New Deal era structure um, built for, I don't know, probably 3,000 high school students or more. And once the the schools consolidated, the Families Partnership Center came in and started using this facility for every possible social service you can imagine that that the city would require. So the director explained to us that he has um, children coming for after-school programming in one door, people coming in for drug rehab and um, counseling services in another, people coming in for homeless services, they would line up and um, get onto a shuttle bus and go to a homeless um, shelter just off of the, outside of the city. Um, other clients that are coming to the building include people who are seeking um, refuge and counseling for domestic abuse, um, domestic violence abuse, but you also have people who are domestic abuse perpetrators who are also coming for, for service, for counseling. So all of this is happening in one building, and amazingly enough, a lot of these people are also, a lot of the homeless people store their belongings in garbage bags and tuck them against and under the trees next to the creek wall so that when they come back from the, the shelter, they can find their belongings again. And it just seems to me that it's one of these situations in which the institutionalization of life has kind of taken over this public space, right? And that, in a way, the design, these, these organizations are doing extraordinary things, but they're kind of sequestering into this part of the city is extremely problematic. And it, it seems like we just have an opportunity to think about how this site um, here, which connects to the school, how this site here, which connects to a more thriving and more diverse um, uh, retail strip, Could actually really start to impact and connect to these areas, so you don't have the kind of isolation of social service clients as you do today. So I I can't say that this park solves all of those things, (laughs) but I will show you some of our designs for two of these pocket parks along the way. And so this is um, our design for a a kind of wetland playground um, across the creek from Malcolm X. um, Sorry, in Malcolm X Park. Um, By the oh, sorry, the anecdotes have to come later. I'll hold off. <laughs> um, but our proposal is to return Malcolm X Park back into a floodplain, um, so that it yes can flood when water comes down. Um, it can act as water storage. It can act as this um, an actual wetlands. Um, there's an extraordinary opportunity for kids to use that wetland as a playground, and so we've developed certain areas for toddler zones and um, uh, basketball courts and um, um, other age groups um, around this park. There's also a really great opportunity to connect from this lot into the church, and so we're thinking about ways the church can use it as its event space. And then the last site I wanna show you is this one, which is what we're calling the Crossroads site. Um, So we've been looking at areas kind of north of here, and and this um, parking lot is basically a culverted area where you see the creek running underneath the parking lot here and over to here. And then Clinton Street runs right into Main Street here, which is the kind of main retail strip. And so we've seen a possibility or an opportunity here to kind of reinstitute a meadow, um, or, or, or a meadow habitat, um, taking advantage of the kind of um, short, uh, low profile, sorry, the low soil profile in an area like this, um, and excavating it and opening it up into an amphitheater space. So the opportunity here would be to have... Um, um, day and night programming to bring in people to see movies or film event, uh, sorry, or music events um, in the evening, or have market market um, uh, exchanges or farmers markets or craft fairs during the day, um, and things that can really connect those institutions back into Main Street. So you can just see our nighttime shot. Great. So I'll, I'll end with that for now. Oh, that's right. I am also implementing at this time. Um, so for the last section, and I, I, I think this is where a lot of questions just really open up for our project, especially. Um, in many ways you can design anything, but in any city and especially in Poughkeepsie, um, I think it's just very important to be strategic and to think about what can happen. And so we've been asking a lot of questions about how to make any of this happen. Um, so. Um, this is a lot of text to look at, but basically, from a zoning perspective, um, we've been looking at opportunities to create rights of way easements, basically allowing private landowners to give public access to their sites, and in exchange, um, the city would then relieve them of liability, help them with maintenance, things like that. Um, we're also looking at opportunities to designate these sites as parkland, um, deal with land swaps or land purchases by the city. Um, looking at zoning changes that would relieve parking regulations in these areas. I can't tell you how much parking drives all of this. It's extraordinary. You just see landscapes of asphalt and all of these people saying, you can't do something here because you need parking, you know? And so we're kind of trying to change the thinking around that. Um, there, Jenny and I, we talked about this the other day, that we cannot get a single answer on who owns and ma- is ob- obligated to maintain the creek wall. And even just the clarification of ownership would change a lot. Um, so these are on a, on a more policy-oriented level, some questions that we're asking ourselves. Um, but we also want to think more importantly about ways that the project is, and ultimately does not begin with a master plan. The project begins with imagination, um, the creation of desire for change. And in a way, we have to implement that at the very beginning. So we've been looking at planning, um, we've been looking at a phasing strategy that would start hopefully next year with signage. Um, And for us, um, oh, actually, I'll show you a couple of examples of our signage schemes um, a little bit later. But we've been looking at signage as not just sort of signs that orient you in the city, but also opportunities for outreach and events and things that activate the creek. Um, We would then uh, try to move towards a very lightweight infrastructure that's cheap and, and easy to install, and then um, look at opportunities to um, uh, work with the institutions that I spoke of earlier to, um, start, park- st- to start to generate pocket parks along the creek. Um, and then this all works with the eventual goal of creating a, continuous, or a somewhat continuous walkway through the city. Um, but again, I'll show you some of our signage strategies. Um, I haven't even shown this to Clearwater yet, but I'm showing it tonight. <laughs> um, but this is, um, We've been thinking about signage as both the kind of recognition of the creek, so imagine that you could paint contour lines over a bridge crossing. We've been looking at ways to install seating into bridge crossings that could start to use, to very, in very cheap and light ways, think of this as a gathering space in the city. We've been looking at um, creek monitoring um, technologies um, from the, the high-tech to the low-tech, um, ideas of using signage as a community message board, um, an urban nature trail, Um, and then wayfinding that would help you kind of walk along this incredibly meandering pathway through the city Um, and then along with this we're actually going to be working with a group of Bard students in the spring um, to host block parties to um, have market events to have cleanup events and um, work with uh, school groups and um, in some way or another um, to really activate these signs and we hope to design the signs so that different people can curate tours of the creek along um, over time Um, and then we've been playing with the idea um, through the signage that we can start to imagine these spaces as now backyards turning into front yards. And so there's this kind of play with the furniture that you, you, know, you just get to enjoy life on in your backyard becoming like an extremely long lawn chair that five people can sit on <laughs> or that it becomes a kind of community center in that way. Um, similarly, we've been looking at MAS as a signage um, technology, I guess we could say. Um, and I think here there's an opportunity for, citizens, for residents to curate their own schemes and their own tours of, this, of the creek. Um, so I think for us, the phasing is hopefully a way to start light and get people interested as we go and start to invest in, in more and more in the, the creek. Um, the signage is the, really the first step for us in doing that. And, it, we hope to do as much as we can with this, the small budget that's available in this regard, and in a way, try to activate interest at the same time that we actually create space along the creek. Um, and the, the last thing I want to show you um, is the, the handbook, which I haven't mentioned at all yet. But um, we were tasked with creating a master plan and a series of pilot site designs, as I have said, um, and we realized that it was just real, more important to create a kind of citizens' handbook and. So um, we've created this kind of guidebook to the creek that's meant for um, everybody from the city planners to the city council on the one end to individual homeowners or landlords on the other. Um, And we're hoping to both inspire people to um, uh, adapt um, uh, more positive land use practices to uh, start building uh, rain gardens and um, turning towards the creek and Um, starting to really activate ecosystems. Um, And we've tried as much as possible to connect that to um, um, ideas about how people could use that land in their daily lives. So I'll show you a couple of examples. Um, This shows the kind of range of users that we hope to attract. And um, and then we've gone through a a range of different land use types, uh, parks, public infrastructure, um, institutions like the ones I spoke of earlier. Um, and then many of the industrial and commercial businesses along the creek, um, and of course, residents. So somewhat quickly, um, this is our our garden pathway um, in which you can start to imagine um, ways to expand and connect from existing parkland down towards the creek. Um, You could imagine a basking beach in which um, humans and turtles alike take advantage of this kind of great, great sun exposure along the edge of the creek. Um, You could imagine um, event spaces underneath the kind of hidden overpass of the highway. Um, You know, Jenny's Concrete Channels of the LA River (laughs) um, remind me of the opportunity to really use these incredibly grand sloped spaces that we have underneath these infrastructural exchanges. And so here we've just tried to imagine a film screening. Um, We've, again, I can't tell you how many pages of these are parking lot (laughs) re-envisions, but There are opportunities to reuse parking lots as um, event spaces for church groups, uh, gospel events, um, church picnics, and everything else. And um, here we've imagined the reintroduction of of a kind of tidal pool at the mouth of the creek um, as a kind of outdoor classroom. Um, Here um, you see two examples of kind of uh, uh, industrial uh, new examples of industrial tourism where you can go and kind of get excited about the salts that are put on your roads every winter or walk your way through an abandoned um, uh, shell of an industrial building. Um, And then similarly, we've been looking at ways for these commercial spaces to really take advantage of the creek. So beer gardens that look onto a vertical garden that climbs its way up the wall or take out windows that now take advantage of a commuter pathway from the creek out to a bus station. or um, picnic areas that help um, local bakeries and markets um, attract new audiences. Um, We're looking at ways for people to reuse their driveways as playgrounds. Um, When the car pulls out, the grass pavers make a really fantastic playground. Um, Or we've looked at um, ways in which um, homeowners could perhaps uh, group together to create spaces that are communal to them in their local backyards. our our little hot tub scene. (laughs) Or we could see in here, for example, the way that um, um, a a condo or a multifamily residential building could sort of have these fantastic uh, um, winter bonfire, um, campfire (laughs) scenes in their backyards. So um, that is is actually my last slide. But um, I think in many ways, the intention is to take on this incredibly carved up incre- it's a def- definitely privatized zone that we're dealing with and so in Poughkeepsie I think there's very little opportunity it seems like at this point there's very little chance that the city is going to step in start purchasing property and develop a greenway and so I think we've as much as possible tried to deal with that condition and find ways for um, for this to happen sort of one side at a time uh, thanks
2: Wow, okay, Um, great. Um, I'm the cleanup batter and I'm gonna be pretty brief um, because basically they're identical projects in so many ways, Um, but it just strikes me how much of Jeanette's, what she just uh, showed you in terms of solutions and implementation isn't necessarily about the river. There are a lot of slides here that didn't have the river in it and I think both of these projects take the river as a river very seriously terms of water management and watershed management but and wildlife, but also we're really looking at the river also as a really essential public space and connecting space. And um, um, and I, these ideas, I think I need to, a lot of these ideas I need to take back to LA and show the, the folks who are doing the master plan. Um, so in LA, um, it started out, um, in LA there's no central authority or central um, group uh, like jeanette 's group that 's really spearheading this it 's this kind of sprawling loose coalition of every public agency and every nonprofit in every community, so any one project you might have like three state agencies funded it, plus maybe some city money, and then the county does the maintenance, and maybe a nonprofit designed and built it um, that 's pretty typical um, It started out in the when they first started doing projects in the 90s it was very small projects, mostly with these public private partnerships. Um, and there's been phases, so now we're actually at the phase where it's become more of a big civic project in which the public agencies are really providing most of the money uh, and taking the lead, but you still have all these players. I think um, we've arrived at a point with the LA River where I personally think it would be really um, useful to have a coordinating uh, authority, like a River LA River Conservancy, but at the same time there's something to be said for what's happened so far, which is that the LA River, uh, this issue is really brought people to the, all these players together around these issues and who are now coordinating on issues like water management and um, watershed you know management uh, in ways there used to be there was you know five water agencies and they never talked to each other so the LA River has really brought them together it's really dissolved a lot of boundaries between environmental justice and mainstream environment so in some ways it's been quite really quite that's one of the reasons i find it really exciting to look at this project So just to show you really briefly, um, not in the detail because uh, Jeanette's doing it, but I just talk about other people who do it. Um, So I'll show you in less detail uh, what's going on in the LA River. So here are some of the first small parks, mostly on the um, soft bottom stretches, which actually look vaguely like a river. Some of them are actually quite pretty. Um, This is a beautiful little tiny park that was designed by fifth graders, actually, who live nearby. Terrible slide, but this is actually a stormwater park uh, done by a state agency um, that's designed to basically um, uh, divert all the the water from the storms who are off that street into a depression um, during a big rainstorm, and they have campfires and marshmallow roasts um, at that park. Um, There are a couple of really huge park projects near downtown Los Angeles. This is one of them. This is the first 40 acres or so that they've put in uh, as half half half-active. Half passive um, recreation. It, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the rest of it will eventually be a hundred acre park, and the part that's actually next to the river uh, hasn't been touched yet. Um, that's the other uh, big downtown site. This is 35 acres, 36 acres. Uh, the corn, what's called the cornfield site. This is both of these sites were actually um, phased out rail yards. Um, the fights to uh, get these sites to be park projects were really, really defining in terms of people saying, "Okay, we're not going to just reconvert all this land back to industry. We're going to actually re- revitalize a river. We're going to recreate floodplain. We're going to devote this to public space." Um, this is a really extraordinary space. Downtown Los Angeles has almost no real public space or green space. It's extraordinary. You can probably say that about no other downtown of any major American city in the uh, major American city in the country. Um, so there's our mayor and a couple of our councilmen uh, in that space. Um, What's that? Oh, this is a great space where basically people have gone up and down the river and they've said, we want that, we want that, we want that, we want that. And a lot of those places are actually factories right now. But, you know, they think they're going to get those spaces. So this is a space where the landlord, it's actually a a golf and tennis center, has sworn that he's not selling it to the state even though he wants to develop it into condos. And nevertheless, the state went in and did a big plan for it. Um, And it's not the first place that... um, that this has happened. This is actually, I think that's the, a rail yard that uh, Pacific says they're not selling that um, there's a big, huge, wonderful plan for right on the river. Uh, then there's, okay, so there's green spaces. Now there's bikeways. About half of um, the city, uh, the river right now has bikeways on it. Uh, this is going to happen sooner rather than later. This is not going to take 40 years. Um, so then there's stormwater management projects. Um, there's, they've actually put... Um, Twelve thousand screens on this one section of the river, just to—I'm sorry, this is cleaning up the river. Um, this is a wetland that they built. This used to just be a dirt ditch, essentially, and they rebuilt. They built this beautiful wetland. Nobody knows about it. It's typical of projects like this in Los Angeles, and um, it—they diverted water from the neighborhood storm sewers and out of the river into this wetland, and it's designed, sort of, uh, you know, they 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 planted the right plants in all the different stages to clean up different toxins as the the water flows down uh, through the wetland and then it's actually stored in another wetland on the other side of the river. Um, It also serves as a wildlife. This is um, a wonderful project that the county took charge of. It's really extraordinary that the county has become, county uh, flood uh, control, uh, public works has become such a big player on the river because they were the ones who were the sun gods of flood control for so long. And this is a project where there's an eight-mile square uh, sub-watershed of the LA River, that uh, the county told them they'd give... This is where all the the anchor men go, the the TV reporters, when they want to show themselves waist-deep in water when it's raining in L.A. um, It has really bad drainage, and instead of giving them the storm sewer system, they promised they're they're using it as a model for watershed management. So this is one of the first green streets that they've opened up, uh, which has all kinds of amazing features to capture water, and they worked with all the neighbors uh, to convert their... um, their lawns to xeriscaping and native plants, that sort of thing. What's going on here? Um, bioswale, part of that project. Here's one of the, the front yards. Um, and then art. Um, so art, like I said, has been really central to uh, the LA River from the beginning. The LA River, the whole plan was basically the whole scheme. Uh, vision was really uh, started by artists. Um, and artists have made really central, and I think that's, that's been enormously important because um, you can't get public support for, to revitalize a river that people don't know is there or care about, and people really don't know it's there. It's this huge 51-mile thing that's as, as wide as a football field, and people don't see it. It's really an extraordinary act of um, forgetting. It's probably the most extraordinary act of forgetting, I think, in, in the country. So um, the, the agencies, the folks who, who build the parks, always work with artists to do these beautiful entrance gates or um, other features inside the parks. That's, uh, they paint cats on the storm sewer lids. That was actually sort of guerrilla art until it became legitimized after they started revitalizing the river. Um, the city's uh, master plan really focuses on... Um, I think, I think what I love about the city master plan is it's very much in the spirit of this isn't just about the river, this is about Los Angeles. So they have, they've got the river, they've got this greenway and bikeway. Uh, the city of L.A. Is, owns the first 32 miles of the 51 miles. And they have this uh, great master plan that they came out with in 2007. And the master plan is not just the river itself, but they have green streets that um, connect to the river, all up and down the river. So these green streets will be marked in certain ways and signed in certain ways, and they have, let's see, yeah, they have uh, two-mile bike loops that go in and out from the river that connect the river to the communities and the schools and the other parks and the commercial centers. And I think, you know, what's going on here that I find so exciting um, is that one of the things the city's trying to do, in addition to uh, making this... You know, restoring the river or revitalizing it—we like to say—because we're not trying to return it to its past. We're trying to revitalize it for a healthy future. Is um, is the river right now is an unmarked space? So I live on the beach, and I say I live on—you know—I live I live on the beach. I'm on Venice Beach, and people say I live in the mountains. But the people who live right on the river never say I live on the river. It's an unmarked space in Los Angeles. And one of the things I think that this master plan is really centrally trying to do is to turn the LA River into a marked space so a central feature of the city that's really part of the city's identity and part of your physical experience of moving through the city, and um, part of, of the way you do that is all these things that Jeanette just showed, you know, which were so creative and so uh, wonderful, is you know you use signage and you use art and you use um, you know, all kinds of, essentially, branding is the way they talk about it. It's not my favorite word, but um, it's not a bad word to describe it, and if you think about it, one of the things I try to get people to imagine on my tours is imagine if you've had... Uh, you know this this um, this beautiful greenway that goes for miles and miles and miles, and it's got all these green streets and all these parks and all this. I mean, it could and it makes it possible for kids. No kids in L.A. walk anywhere. They don't walk anywhere. And so I, you know, show a map and say, "Look, if we had all this, this kid who lives here in this neighborhood who never walks anywhere would be able to bike to school and bike to see his friends and bike down and pick up public transportation and go downtown when he gets older." Um, And it could dramatically transform the way people experience the city and move through the city, potentially. It has this really dramatic transformative potential in terms of the way we experience the city as a more public city and a more um, just user-friendly city, which L.A. is not in many ways. Um, Let's see. I don't need to do that. Um, So these are just a couple before and after pictures from the master plan. That's before, that's after, that's before. That's what that they envision that could look like. Um, after they're using inflatable dams to actually make it look more like a river. Um, and I'll just end with, with that. Even now when you take people to the river, even the most concrete stretches of the river, I guarantee you this is not a pretty stretch of the river. People just get so excited. They're like, I had no idea this was here. This is fantastic. Let's do something with it. So um, it's very exciting to do that. So um, thank you. And
0: we'll... Okay, um, Jenny and Jeanette in, invited me to offer a couple of comments at the end, but I'm just going to offer one anecdote, one quick question, because I want to move on to your questions and engagement with them since... We started at 5. We'll go till about 6.30. Um, the anecdote is I grew up next to the L.A. River. Uh, I mean, I did, but uh, you're right. We didn't, I never would say. I grew up in North Hollywood. I grew up literally yeah, like a block and a half from the L.A. River. And, and, my, and it was a site of terror. It was also my mother's boogeyman. Yeah. said, don't go near the river. Oh, no. Because you might fall in, and in January when the rains come, people do fall in. You people fall in and die, and and you hear stories about little kids, mostly who are mm-hmm. playing near the river, fall in and die. They drown. Um, so I, but I would go to the river and watch, fifteen feet high, uh, you know, water coursing through it with empty shopping carts being buoyed along, and just and think about, oh, I don't want to fall in. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but you're right. I live near it, but never identified mm-hmm. with it. And the question is simply, you both brought up questions of ownership. And um, one of the things that, when my American Places class was thinking about New Orleans, a city that's always been intimately tied to its river, and it demonstrates the inextricability of the natural and the built environment. And that city literally has to wrestle with what the river does and means to it. One of the big questions that comes up, beginning in the 19th century, is who owns the waterfront? Mm-hmm. And, and And to what extent can you reclaim public space from a kind of presumptive commercial or corporate or city ownership? So, I mean, that's just a question I'm interested in hearing you guys talk about at some point. But let's open the floor up for questions from you and conversation with our (laughs) panelists. Yes? Um, Thank you uh, for doing the work
3: that you do. And I have so many questions.
0: <laughs> uh, liability. Uh, that's. I'll just describe Lake Carnegie. Yeah. They don't
3: want you to swim in that lake. I have swum in that lake, and it is beautiful,
2: wonderful. Um, but I'm certain there are many reasons why they don't. I think in LA, I would actually say it pretty differently, not that people are afraid of nature. I think people use nature to protect them from people in LA. LA is a really privatized city, and you know, people um, surround themselves with these fortresses of nature in Los Angeles because they don't want people there. And in a lot of ways, that's the way nature has functioned in LA, and nature hasn't been public. It hasn't been in parks. You know, there haven't been, I mean, really the only, I mean, there's Griffith Park, there's obviously parks. The beach, I think, is probably the most successful place in nature that people gather. Whereas I think other cities use nature more as public gathering spaces. LA, I think nature has functioned more often than not as privatizing, um, as privatizing kind of material. And the challenge is, I mean, certainly my experience when I take people to the LA rivers, they're not afraid of nature, they're dying for nature. You know. They're just craving it, and people have even, uh, you know, folks, like Bill, I've never met a person who grew up near the LA River who didn't say, oh yeah, we used to go down there and we did this, 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 and this. You know, it's just, even in its most concrete form, people have been drawn to it, and there's this whole underground history of the LA River that people don't really know about. It hasn't been totally forgotten. People have been using it consistently, and they really crave it, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I keep thinking that um, as you were talking, I kept thinking, we mm-hmm. need Jenny
1: for Poughkeepsie. <laughs> like, who's going to do this, you know? Like, create these a tours and stuff. bring people into the, to the creek. And, and actually, the, the mm-hmm. very simple act of walking up to it and seeing it yeah. and walking along it seems like a, a major step in that direction. But I also just wanted to say a quick anecdote in relationship to your point that it seems like certain types of defensiveness are all compiling in the worst possible way. That, For example, we were walking around the the public housing project that I mentioned on the south side of that long linear strip that we had designed, and they created a, a large chain-link fence between the housing project and the creek, presumably to stop people from falling in. And so in that case, maybe nature is the threat or just, just simple drowning is the threat. And then, of course, because that fence is there, that becomes the place where people go <laughs> to deal, to whatever, mm-hmm. hide stuff that they're not supposed to have. It, they've produced a dead end, yeah, deliberately yeah, produced yeah. a dead end. Mm-hmm. Be, because they're scared of the other thing, It beca- then becomes the feeding ground for the other threat. Mm-hmm. And if you could just simply open up that space and actually make it accessible, make and have like, people walking by in those areas, you wouldn't have the same problems. So it just seems like there are certain mm-hmm. ways which mean, you can kind of un- untangle all of these modes of defensiveness that are happening at the same mm-hmm. time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: I'll just show you my my fear when I saw your plan which retake the LA river by force um, which is great do it it's just about. coming from New Mexico
3: and and living next to Arroyos I, uh-huh. I listened to one woman say well I, I've lived here 10 years I've never seen this Arroyo uh, yeah. you know, dangerously and I
2: and I, said, I just wouldn't yeah but you know it's really <laughs> I, hard so it's really hard to live on a river safely if you don't know how to live on a river and you don't know the river's there. So, you know, first of all, the floods are much more dangerous because we're pouring 10 times as much river- water into that river as we need to during floods. They're so much more dangerous because of that channel. But also, people need to learn how to live on a river again, and that involves having some kind of sense that you grow up with about river safety. And it doesn't mean that people won't eventually drown. They will, as in any river. But um, you can't prevent that. <laughs>
3: This actually deals with pretty much the same um, sort of question. Um, I've I've done a lot of teaching during the summer with uh, with, with grade school teachers and and grade school children. They absolutely love anything related
0: to water. Uh But in public schools, they can't do anything with with water, other than potentially lead tricks
3: to a watershed association, which is allowed to do things with water in some way. And I'm wondering whether this, this, this is a universal problem, or, um, or, or have you found ways around it? Because we simply are unable mm-hmm. to use the, the schools to get experience with mm-hmm. water.
2: Uh, I mean, in LA, um, Friends the LA Rivers developed a curriculum. And I think a lot of the schools are looking at water issues. They're building many watersheds inside their classrooms. Um, that, that, what, that,
3: that sort
0: of thing is fine mm-hmm. um, to, to play with water as a model system,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but to actually go and look at the stream mm-hmm. back at your
2: school. They're not allowed to do that? They're not allowed to do that. that, that, to do that. Um, I've taken school, I mean, school groups are going to the LA River, definitely. It's a, it's a big thing. I took a group of 60 fourth graders there once. And the problem is, you know, you turn your back and they're up to here. And you're like, please don't do that. And now, just don't lick your lips, okay? Please. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, but I, I, I mean, it comes back to this obsession with liability, you know, um, which is is a problem. You know? I, I don't know. That doesn't really address do your you, question. Do you have I unfortunately was forced to because I'd been doing these tours for many years and the city all of a sudden said, you can't go there. Nobody can go there. Of course, people go there all day long. But I was so visible because I was taking large groups of people there all the time that eventually the LAPD said, oh, you can't do this. Why not? So the LA, the, LA, the folks who did the master plan actually had to create a permit process that was specifically for me but that can now be used for other people. Which really, frankly, makes me very angry that I have to have a permit to take people to the Los Angeles River, and so I have to pay $600 a year to get a million dollars worth of two million worth of liability insurance for every year for people to literally walk on concrete. <laughs> literally, I mean it is so dangerous, right? And um, it's this is the big fight that we're fighting now. We've already fought fights about land use. First is to get people to see it's a river. That was the first big fight. That was the first 10 years. Next ten years or land use. Okay, we pretty much won that fight. The big fight that's shaping up right now is public access because the exact agencies that are trying to revitalize the river are telling us that it's trespass- we're trespassing if we go to it, certain sections where they haven't built parks and it's infuriating and that's something that I'm gonna fight really hard when I get back. Um, riparian rights apparently people don't think seem to think it's gonna apply to the LA River successfully. Yeah, unfortunately. Do you have anything about public access? What's, what's okay. going on with public access? And- well, well, it's hard for
1: me to speak to the liability issues. I mm-hmm. think the land use law is something we just haven't gotten very deep into yet. But it also yeah. seems like it's partly a design issue. If the minute you channelize the wall and you have a 15-foot t- drop, of course you're going to have problems. But if you – in the mm-hmm. Malcolm X Park that I showed you, the playground – the attempt was to actually start to gradate the way that you approach the creek so that there isn't like a disastrous fall. Mm-hmm. Like you're kind of you're approaching and you can get part you can become part of it Jump. and there's a tidal pool there and you play with that. But you're not on the edge of a precipice when you do it. <laughs> so that's that's one solution. That so fun.
2: <laughs> Precipices are good too. Yes. yes.
1: I wonder both, what are the examples
2: that either or both of these cities see as success stories, what are the places in terms of river reclaiming that everyone is talking about or, or, or that you do talk about when you're strategizing, or maybe the failures as well, um, you know, either a model plan or a model mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just then the... Other questions that feed back onto that is, if there's so much convergence in the solutions, where's the you new? Know, let's do What's next? You know, besides street furniture and mm-hmm. you know access to the water and involving the community. You know, what is different and new that we want to look for or take away from these stories? Yeah, those are great questions. You want to start? I can start. I'm still thinking, yeah, okay, I'll start. Um, so in terms of other rivers, I mean, river revitalization is... A, all, all cities destroyed the rivers during the industrial era, basically. And most cities are revitalizing their river for a lot of the same... Almost all the same motives, I think, that these two projects are happening. So these two projects are part of a much wider, bigger worldwide movement. I mean, South Korea, Seoul, they actually um, had... Cemented over their river with a freeway, and they actually removed that freeway and you know daylighted the river. Um, um, so I think that you know this, these are all we have a lot of models that we could look towards in terms of how they're changing. And you might be able to, to speak more knowledgeably to this, but my own sense is that you know they start out as um, really more about the rivers. I mean, but they're all, they're all using river revitalization to revitalize their cities. I think, but I think a lot of them. I think people are getting more and more creative about Using river, these rivers and these um, greenways as public space, and really seeing them as urban rivers. I was really struck when I went to Denver. They have these beautiful mountain rivers, you know, uh, Colorado rivers that run through the city, and they've done. They have greenways along them and bikeways, and I was really struck that those are very um, separated from the city. Like you go down, and then you're just in this like. It's almost it's designed very much to get you away from the city, I think, and to be very much not part of the city. Like, you don't even see street signs uh, when you cross under bridges. And I was thinking in contrast to the LA River, which is very much an urban project. Like, there are parts of the LA River that will look more wild and will be more about wildlife habitat and water capture, but there are a lot of parts. I mean, this runs through a city, so um, that will be much more urban. Um, And there are people who object to that. There are a lot of people who think we should just wall off the LA River, you know, revitalize it, wall it off, don't let people there free the river. Yeah, I agree. We, I think we've been looking at
1: the Seoul example too. It's it's just such a, uh-huh. an extraordinary example of a project like that getting done quickly. Like there was just yeah. a true centralized decision to make this happen. Yeah, and it's it's really extraordinary capitalism and, uh,
2: is a drag when you're trying to do this kind of project. Definitely. Oh my god.
1: And I guess that I mean that points to for me to the contentious issues too. I love your question because I agree that I think there's a tendency because in a way, we're all advocates. There's a tendency to, to try to please everybody when you want to get a project like this done. And therefore, this, the same language keeps coming up again and again, you know? And it, it, it just gets to the point where, like, we could just be a traveling roadshow and everybody's sort of saying, yes, access. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It's so true. You, like, every project is gonna have its bench and its signage and everything. And I, just, I, love, the, I love the desire to sort of move beyond that. And I, I think what ends up happening for us is that in all of our public meetings, there is, there is debate. There's actually quite a lot of contention about what people prioritize when they talk about the creek. And as much as possible for the, for the sake of being strategic, I think we try to combine and coalesce them. But the differences are there. And um, I think there is a larger legacy of environmental organizations in the area that have tended to focus on this as a walkable greenway. And then there are groups that um, are asking what what happens to my parking lot, and they're asking a different set of questions. I think about the usefulness of those same spaces, and then we had this really fascinating meeting in which um, a planner said to us, "You know, I think there's too, such a thing as too much park space, and I think there's is, this is a city, and we don't need a wetlands in the city. And what we do need is development. Oops. And so there's this development, and so the the question of how much how much development, the question of how you deal with privatization, the question of, of, of um, the, the level of city support that one would require to do these things are very contentious issues. And then they tend to get, um, I guess, paid. What, what metaphor am I looking for? <laughs> they tend to get overshadowed by the green, like the green way, the walkway. The, yeah. And it, it's like this idea that the tree is going to save your environment is, is an easy way to take that on. But I think it would be more, I think, it would be interesting to engage the actual debates.
2: That's actually great. And just very, very briefly to piggyback on that, one of the things that's going on in the LA River is the city's trying to create a clean tech corridor along most of the downtown stretch, basically saying we're going to keep development here because we need development. We need industry. You know, it creates all the things we need, but we're going to try to encourage clean forms of industry along the river, and we're going to turn this into, like, a model uh, area for clean industry.
0: Question in the very back.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I
3: was curious in you both
0: your plans and discussion about reclaiming certain areas and we utilize them, uh, any discussion on security or safety, public safety, because you're dealing sometimes these boxes, certain the environments they may look at it from a different perspective. But I, I don't have any ideas about that, like cameras and like that discussed? So,
2: well access to it, but probably
0: staff and mm-hmm. service staff. And then there's a second follow-up that would be maintenance. How much of impact on local Ms. municipalities Ms. the maintenance of these spaces, which are great, right, you know, obviously what municipalities are being squeezed right now. So is that in the
1: discussion, process of that? Yeah, very much so. I think um, when you talked about the terror that people see the LA River with, I think in Poughkeepsie's case, I think every time we talk about the project, someone raises a question of crime and safety and. I think mm-hmm. in many regards, park spaces, especially at night, are seen as just havens for criminals and they're, they're not welcoming spaces to many. And it is a serious concern. And um, you know, it's, it seems to me that there's the approach in which you put a fence around it and you lock it and you hope that it becomes a, d- a policed space. And then there's the, the mm-hmm. other approach, which is that it's used 24 hours a day, that it's um, mm-hmm. open to people, that it's, that if there are people walking by and using the space then it, it yields a different kind of security so ex- the mm-hmm. example of the, the fence that stops people from falling into the river that then breeds crime, is just it's just like one problem leading to the next to the next mm-hmm. so I think as much as possible we're trying to to see it that way Is there
2: any conversation before the lighting and cameras is there any conversation
0: about that in, in the plans oh, so you guys are in the midst yeah. of plan and has that I how, do you, think how, do you, how do you use that I, you know, like how do you address that kind of issue? if you, you try to sell communities open it up spaces that to take on as a responsibility you
2: know? yeah I, of course you know, I mean LA my god you know, when they design parks in one of these <laughs> neighborhoods in LA they actually take into account how do you design the park to prevent drive-by shootings literally so a lot of the topography that you see in these parks is actually designed for nothing more than to inhibit drive-by how shootings how do you do that Um, You have, like, um, you you inhibit visibility, and then you you have the typography so that people are too low, you know. Because we've been told to to design things so that um, the police... uh, Because they have, like, three
1: cops at night, Mm -hmm. like, in the entire city at at night, (laughs) and they're all in cars. So you basically have to design the whole thing so that they can survey everything from the windshield. (laughs) It's, like, the exact opposite. (laughs) Oh, my
2: God. Yeah, no, it's a big question. The problem is that I think in general... You know, just like Jeanette said, the impulse is to, oh, well, we're going to make it safe by putting a big fence around it and not letting people in there after 7 o'clock. And I think in general, it's not completely true, but on average, the more public you make a space, the safer it's going to be. And there's this illusion, long-time illusion in L.A., that the opposite is true. This is part of our big fight right now in downtown Los Angeles where they are for the first time, I mean, it's always been technically illegal to go down to the river there, but they've never enforced it. I was down there lots of times with tourists when the LAPD would just wave at us, whatever, and all of a sudden they're saying, oh, you know, we're going to arrest you. You can't be down here. And there's a, a, the business association down there has been saying they they, they got a permit to shut off that site with gates at both ends. I'm like, so seriously, you really think that the way you're going to make this area safer is to make this less pub- – I mean, let's put a farmer's market there. Let's put some green space up at the top. Let's put, like, a history trail that talks about the history of – because that's where they do all the filming. You know, I mean, are you crazy? You know, especially at the exact time that we're talking about revitalizing the river and connecting it to downtown, you're going to actually shut off access to the river. Well, you don't understand. It's so dangerous. And, I mean, I've, I've had the cops say – they describe it in a way you just think like what universe are you living in when they have described this sort of gentle this gentle driveway down in the river they say well there's this really really steep driveway and it's full of these enormous potholes which are like you know this deep <laughs> and, and, it's, and, and you go down there and then you get to this part and then you just really slide down there, this really precipitous slope and then if, if, you hit, if you hit the river you can slide right into the low flow channel which is like, because there's, you know, there's most of the river is this deep there, and then there's low flow channel that's about a foot and a half. The low flow channel is 30 feet away from, and I mean, it's just, it's, it's like, I, I don't even know how to fight it. That's so irrational. But there is this kind of obsession with, oh my God, this is so dangerous. And they're, they're like, well, you know, people jump off the bridge, they commit suicide, you're like, so you're afraid they're going to land on us? I mean, what? You know,
0: what exactly? I mean, I'm sorry
2: that happens, that's tragic, but what does it have to do with us? You know, or we'll be in there, and the LAPD to come out and say, we'll say, well, what's unsafe about being here? Well, you know, it could flood, and it's August. You're like, you know, it's August, it hasn't rained for three months. So it's, it's a level of, it's a, it's a fight that's going to be very, very difficult, but that. Is, it's the upcoming fight on the LA River right now? It's so crazy. I'm sorry. I'm getting I'm getting nuts just thinking about it. I haven't thought about it for a while.
0: We have time for one last new question? It's up to you. Lars. Yeah, I, I was curious about this
2: thing, I think really
3: you know, your introduction kind of made me think about this. And that's this sense of place that we have, I think, as humans, and that you know sometimes you get you know often in my case you get it. Up, you go back to the old neighborhoods and the old natural physical environments where you grew up and so on. It's a different thing, but there's this yeah. sense of place, and I'm wondering what, so is slightly different a lot of what we talk about is to look at the river and how humans relate to the river and so on, but there's this social component of this like the communities and the people that I live in in Poughkeepsie or in Los Angeles that they are actually a and their values and their experiences are part of this solution. I'm wondering to what degree you or others are trying to understand that part of the equation. I know that's a very difficult thing, maybe to to capture, but to what? Yeah. You mean their
2: current, ex- their experience, their history with the river?
3: Yeah, the social their experiences, the values that are part of those experiences, whether mm-hmm. there are cultural differences, what they, you know, what they, just the just sh- the human part of this mm-hmm. equation—that's a—it's a little diffuse, but mm-hmm. um,
1: I'm not sure if you get my, yeah, my question. Uh,
3: mm-hmm. I can imagine that. Yeah, I mean, that this is partly what you're talking about: is that mm-hmm. depending on where. you um, depending on your point of view, you will get all kinds of different constituents that will argue for different things. Yes, okay. But in fact, if you, if you take on that perspective of, you know, of a, a community as a heterogeneous, evolving mm-hmm. set of values. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering whether you see a transformation, whether, whether you feel mm-hmm. that there's a maturation, or whether you feel like you're, you're just starting something.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think for
1: us it's been interesting to see how people uh, kind of reveal for them what the markers of place are.
2: Um,
1: um, It's good I get to say it again because it wasn't very clear. (laughs) Um, It's been interesting to me to see how people do mark their understanding of the creek. Like everybody has a different sense of what they value. There have been a lot of people who have come to meetings and said, we think of the creek as the falls because there's this one area quite close to the Hudson River where the creek has these just dramatic and beautiful falls that cut down next to an old industrial warehouse. And um, for many people that becomes the icon with which they understand the creek. For a lot of people who feel very embedded in or very wedded to um, the the historic identity of of the city as this kind of 19th century industrial um, um, kind of gem. Um, a lot of people are pointing to neighborhoods that that sort of have this architectural identity. And then there's on the other side people who say, "Oh, that creek, that's such a pain," you know, <laughs> and just kind of point at liability issues and the time they got um, fined by the DEC because a dead deer was found on their their part of the creek um, <laughs> um, in, the, in the creek bed. And anyway, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it's it's interesting to see what people have valued in the creek, and I think all of these issues of crime, of terror, of delight, and the re- a, re- a desire for a recovery of the creek's past ecological context all come up through these discussions that we have. But in many ways, I think... Sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. I don't really no. know what I'm thinking yet, but in some ways, we've, we've been talking about doing an oral history project, and I think in many ways that would help us engage these questions. I'm really interested to think about the more personal level of this, that there are so many people who grew up next to this creek, whose backyard mm-hmm. play spaces are behind a chain-link fence next to this creek. And then at the same, so that's sort of one end of it. And then there's this other end of it, and I think your talk for me just pulls this out, that there's a delight in the kind mm-hmm. of bizarre leftover wasteland, right? There's like this excitement mm-hmm. that, I, oh, I, you know, I, I climbed over that fence and I went to the creek when I wasn't supposed to do it, or mm-hmm. I, I just, like the Terminator movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, entered this concrete wasteland. And I think that's something really exciting, too, to, to call upon, that if we want to draw attention to the creek... You might one might also call upon the excitement of the wasteland, or the excitement of this kind of terror. But
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, people connected to it. I mean, I think the challenge in LA is, it really is, even more than in most cities, I think this extraordinary act of forgetting, um, and um, is to reinstill some kind of spirit of place, you know. Um, at the same time, there are, like, the Latino community I think has never really lost their identity and uh, their attachment to the river, and that's because, um, the heart of the Latino community in Boyle Heights is on the other side of the river from downtown the rest of LA. So it's like when you cross the river, you're home. So I think the river has always maintained a place in kind of Latino cultural sort of spiritual geography in ways it hasn't that um, people are plugging into in terms of um, revitalizing it. Um, I think that, um, you know, just say a couple more things. One is that I find on my tours, I've probably taken like 3,000 people at least, you know, like thousands of people down there. There's just this incredible craving. And there is no substitute for just taking people there. Like you can talk and talk. I pretty much quit writing about the river because I just feel like, no, I'm just going to take people there now, you know, as long as it's in L.A. Like I won't. Um, And there's this craving that's emerging that I think is very 21st century that's happening in a lot of places, but especially in L.A. for public space and for real community and for ways to express that. And so people are using the river to do that. And then just the last point is that one of the real challenges is, um, you know, you go to these community community meetings that the city did for the master plan, and it will be this very working-class community, and people will stand up and say, what are you worried about making this river pretty for? We, we, we need, you know, more cops, and our kids need to be educated and all this. And, and the challenge, and I think they've done this with some success in L.A., which is to me one of the exciting things about it. I think it's really redefining environmentalism. Is to to try to persuade people, no, this is about those things. This isn't about mostly making a pretty space because environmentalism has always had this class divide associated with it. And a lot of folks in those communities will be very suspicious, you know, like, oh, here we go again, you know. And so one of the reasons I love working on the Alley River is I feel like it's a project that's really transforming. How people think about environmental projects in general, and what they're for, and why we do them, and what they should be Um, for—not completely. You still get that divide is still there, but it's it's a little bit harder to tell who's working for environmental justice and who's working for, you know, more mainstream causes in LA. It's all getting very, very blurry. And to me, that's very exciting to really just redefine what these projects are for.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for coming. I
2: want can